we have a, a, just a real great honor to have a, a guest here today with us, and uh, his name is Aaron White, and Aaron was with us yesterday. There was uh, probably 15 or 20 churches represented here for a breakfast uh, that we had together, West Island churches here, and it was just awesome to be together, and Aaron shared there, was, was super inspiring to hear part of his story, and uh, so he's with us today, and, and he's going to speak into, into our gathering, into our church community. Um, I think, I think a, a topic that's going to be very relevant for us fits in this theme we've been talking about lately, prayer and the way of Jesus, and, um, and so I, we're excited to have Aaron. Aaron, why don't you come up? Aaron comes from Vancouver, and yeah, let's give him a hand, Woo! Uh, he comes from Vancouver. He'll tell you a little bit about himself, and he currently has been, for the last several years, working with uh, 24-7 Prayer Canada and heavily involved in uh, some neighborhoods there in Vancouver that um, are pretty interesting and rough neighborhoods, but God has called them there and, and, and loves them deeply. So, Aaron, thanks for being here. We're, we're really glad you're with us today. He, he shared, like, some crazy travel stories and crazy prayer stories yesterday, and so I've kind of called... Now he's my travel and prayer mentor. Is that... So is that all right? Okay, cool. Thanks so much. Is it alright if I use this thing here? Okay. I don't want to break anything. Lock that off here. Thank you so much for having me here. This is the third time that I have got to visit this particular church. The second time in this building. The first time back at that old really cool school you all used to have. Is that? Do you remember that? Yeah. That that felt really homey. This feels really cool. Um, how many people got to, were at that school? Yeah, so, wow, very good, very good. <laughs> how many people had to stack chairs at that school? And yeah, right, I've, I've done that for years. Um, I, I'm really honored to be here. I do love coming here into this church. And um, I, I don't know if you really uh, know this, maybe you do. Um, it's, a, it's a huge honor and it takes a huge amount of humility uh, for a, uh, a pastor to let somebody else preach on a Sunday to their church. It's also fairly courageous. Um, you know, oftentimes I'll say, they asked me to come, so if you have any problems with what I say, you know, don't complain to me, complain to them. But, but really, um, it, it's, it's a huge act of humility and courage. And of all the time, I spent a little bit of time, just a little bit with, with David, and, and I do just want to honor him that every time I've spent with him, he has come across as someone who cares very deeply and very well. It's not a naive caring. It's a very uh, knowledgeable, a very intentional, very deep caring for the people in his charge, um, that he is a person who loves you, and he loves God. This is very evident. He loves prayer, and he loves the Word of God. And, uh, and you are very blessed to have him, and he is very blessed to have you. And, yeah. And, and, and let's be really quick to encourage one another, yeah? Anybody ever feel, like, I like that word encouraged, because sometimes we just need courage. And, and it's very easy in some settings to discourage one another, to, to steal courage from each other. So we should be the people who are encouraging, who are giving, granting, gifting courage to one another to face the world, because the world is kind of tough sometimes, yeah? Yeah, a little bit? I mean, there's great things that happen, but it's also really, really tough. We go through hard stuff. This past month, I, I'm really miss. I was just texting with my wife, I'm really missing her, because I've been away for a month. Um, for my wife and my kids, um, 
I hadn't really planned it that way. They were supposed to come and join me in Ireland, but we couldn't work it out. So I've been away for a whole month. That's really hard. I don't want to complain because I did just get to travel for a month and it was awesome. Um, and she's got it way harder than I do for sure. Um, but, uh, but I was traveling over this last month and got to go to Beirut um, and work with a, a Syrian church that had committed to not leaving Damascus during the whole civil war. Unbelievable people in such deep pain. If you want to talk about people who know the world is hard and need encouragement, um, they're there. I got to be in Dublin with some friends, got to be in Belfast with the 24-7 prayer gathering uh, where there was a thousand, over a thousand people from 35 different nations, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, and everything in between, all worshiping the Lord. It was unbelievable. And for the last two weeks, um, I've been traveling with a friend of mine named Peter. And uh, we, we kind of rolled into Dublin, and you can kind of see what I look like. Well, Peter is about the same size as me. He also has a huge beard, and he has dreads that he's been growing since 1995. And they go down to about here. And he calls, he's a pastor, and he calls himself the dreaded pastor. <laughs> and so we're walking around Ireland... And as we walk into places, into pubs and cafes and churches, you can kind of see what happens in people's eyes. The thought that, that kind of crosses their mind immediately. You just look at them and they, they see us walking in and their eyes get a bit big. And you can just see the word Vikings. And it's kind of passing through their mind like they've come back. They're back. They're here. You know, it's... It's very interesting, but I loved traveling with Peter. I mean, he's just a really good friend of mine for a long time. Um, but the, uh, the really th interesting thing, the reason we took this trip was because two years ago, uh, I went and visited him in Minneapolis. And I knew I was going to go visit him, and I thought in about a month I'm going to have to come back and do his funeral. Because he had been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And, uh, and the time I, I just, it just happened to work out, the time I was visiting him, he was having his uh, surgery. And so I, I kind of knew where the hospital was. So I just the whole day was walking around, praying uh, for him, walking around the hospital, and then went and saw him afterwards. And he, he was about 80 pounds lighter than he is now. And uh, when they opened him up, they took out this 8-centimeter tumor. But they found so much more. And they said uh, to him, when he woke up and he was kind of feeling a little bit better after surgery, they said, we're so sorry, but it's wildfire through your body, and you have 30 to 60 days to live. Now, that's tough news to hear, and I just sat with him, praying with him in, in the bed, and I just said, look, Peter, I mean, whatever the diagnosis is, however bad the diagnosis is, that actually doesn't change anything. If God's going to heal you, it just means more glory to God. But we do have to plan your funeral. And so we did, and he has uh, four young kids and wife. And so we were doing that, but we were just praying. We had a lot of people around the world praying for him, and there just kind of came a moment where I had a confidence, a faith, that he was going to be healed. Now, I don't say that lightly because um, I've known lots of people who have deep pain. I know lots of people who've died. I've done lots of funerals. My own son has type 1 diabetes. We prayed for him a lot. He hasn't been healed. Um, but I just had this real faith, this real that he's going to be healed. And, and so he got to a point, his, his sort of D-Day, this was, he said, okay, we'll do 60 days. We'll make that the D-Day. And this, that day came along. And then the next day came, and he just emailed everyone. He said, D-Day plus one. And then the next day, he said, D-Day plus two. And he'd actually been given tickets to the Super Bowl. And, uh, and it was like D-Day plus 45. 
And he's like, we're just praying, like, hope he gets to the Super Bowl. And he got to the Super Bowl. And he's FaceTiming me from the Super Bowl, going, I'm at the Super Bowl. I'm like, yeah. And, and, he, and he's now at, at D-Day plus about 630. And he's, he's okay. He, we could travel for two weeks throughout Europe. And so I believe in this. I believe that God answers prayer. I believe that this, he's healed. He was on this experimental new drug, but the doctors have said, we don't think that's helped you at all. We don't know what has changed this situation. And we go, well, we know what's changed this situation. But again, I don't say that lightly. Today's talk is not going to be about just how God miraculously heals people, because the first time I met Peter, uh, we were in um, Spain, and he was in mourning because his sister, the year before, had contracted cancer. And they had prayed for her, and she was healed. They did some tests. They, again, stage four cancer. They said, you're going to die. They prayed for her. They laid hands on her, and she was healed. They said, there's no more cancer in your body. It's totally gone. And the, the family celebrated it. And then three months later, the cancer came back. And a couple months after that, she died. And so he was in mourning. What's that about? I believe in prayer, and I believe in healing, and I believe in miracles. But what I want to talk about today is this really thorny subject of unanswered prayer. Anyone ever feel like you've had an unanswered prayer? That's not just a rhetorical question. Yeah, we need to talk about this stuff, don't we? I mean, it's uncomfortable, but don't we have to talk about this stuff? It may seem weird that the guy who is sort of running 24-7 prayer in Canada is like, I want to come and talk to you about the times that prayer doesn't seem to work. That's a weird thing. The guy who started 24-7 prayer internationally, Pete Gregg, wrote a book called God on Mute, What Happens When God Doesn't Answer Prayer, because his wife got a brain tumor, and he just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and it's, it didn't go away. She's still alive, but it didn't go away. What happens when prayer doesn't seem to be answered? Do you know, I bet that every single one of us here have asked that question at some point, if we're really living, if we're really loving people, if we're really trying to do this whole prayer thing. Why does sometimes this not seem to work? And if we're honest, uh, the, the people who are around us who maybe are kind of questioning Christianity, questioning religion, questioning faith, that's one of their biggest questions. Have you ever had somebody ask you that question? If God is good... And if God is powerful, then why do bad things happen, right? You ever had anybody ask you that question? I have people every single day ask me that question. So it's a real thing. And so we have to come to terms. We have to try and get our head around it. And at a certain point, look, it's a mystery, and we're not going to sort it out in the, the hour and a half that I have today to speak to you. Um, <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, we're not going to start it out today, but, but we need to start addressing it. We need to start thinking about it. We need to start praying about it. Uh, because I have friends who go, well, actually, there is no such thing as unanswered prayer. If you have unanswered prayer, what it means is, is that um, it's just a lack of faith. You ever been told that? 
You know, they'll say, oh, you know, Jesus tells the story of the woman who goes and knocks on the door and she's just persistent with the unjust judge and she just will not let him be. And the, the unjust judge eventually gives in. And if the unjust judge eventually gives in because of her faith, then surely God, who is just, will give in, won't he? So it's just a matter of persistent faith. And I believe in persistent faith. I do. I believe in just keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. But I don't think it's healthy and hopeful to say to someone, oh, your child died because you didn't have enough persistent faith. Amen? Let's stop doing that. Let's not do that to people. Because I don't think that's true, and I don't think that really shows that God is very good. And I also think that it, it probably means that people don't really believe in pain. They don't really believe in sorrow. Maybe they haven't experienced it, or if they have, they've just kind of shut it away. Maybe they've experienced so much pain they have to go there. I don't know. But I don't think that's particularly helpful. I don't think that's particularly biblical to say that there's such a thing, there's no such thing as unanswered prayer because we just need more faith. I believe in more faith, but I think there has to be more than that. There's other friends who say, I don't believe in unanswered prayer because it just means we're not praying right. We're not praying correctly. We're not praying for the right things. We should just wait and only pray for the things that God tells us to pray for. And, and I think there's some truth to that. I think we should wait and say, God, what do you want us to pray for and align our will with that? But again, I think if somebody holds that position, they don't necessarily believe in humans. Because don't you just kind of want to pray about stuff? You know, isn't that maybe okay? When you read the Psalms, do read the Psalms. If anybody thinks, oh, you know, unanswered prayer isn't a thing, or we need to be really pious and polite in our prayers, read the Psalms. These things are messed up. Like they are. Like every human emotion is there and like really messy. There are psalms that I think we would be incredibly uncomfortable to just read out in church. Yeah? But they're part of, I mean, this is the prayer book of Israel. It was the prayer book of Jesus. It's been the prayer book of the church for 2,000 years. We're really uncomfortable with some of that stuff. But the psalmist seems to be totally comfortable to pray about everything, including how angry he or she or they are. How they're just like, God, why aren't you paying attention to this? This person's doing this, and I don't like it. I mean, that's just really, that's conservative. Like, it's re- it gets really, really rough. You know, they're not happy in the Psalms a lot of the times. And they seem to pray about whatever's on their mind. The Psalms are organized in a certain way. The last, I was talking with my friend last week in Belfast who she lost her husband two years ago, just a random heart attack, and she's still lamenting and mourning. And we were just talking about the Psalms, which have been a great solace and comfort to her. And we said, you know, the last six Psalms, Psalm 145 to 150, are just full praise and hallelujah. It starts with praise the Lord, it ends with praise the Lord. There's not a hint of darkness in it. It's all hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the Lord, this is wonderful. But you know that the rest of the Psalms, Psalm 1 to Psalm 144, most of them include lament, which I describe as faithful complaint. But really, it's faithful, but it's a complaint. It's a full-on whine sometimes. God, why is this? 75% of the Psalms include lament. We think they're kind of all praise, but it's actually mostly saying something ain't right. And it's almost as if the Psalms are saying, you have to walk through 144 laments before you get to the final six praise you got to live in this world with this pain and this sorrow, and joy is coming, but it's coming in the morning. Sorrow will last for the night. 
I don't mean this to be a downer message, but it's true. We got to be honest about this stuff, don't we? If we're trying to speak any kind of good word to the world, we have to be honest about what the world is. We can't be saying, oh, we're all above it because the Bible wasn't saying that. The Bible was saying, yeah, this is really hard. You know where the Psalms were mostly compiled, not written necessarily, but compiled was in Babylon when Israel was taken into exile. They didn't want to be there. And they sat around going, how did this happen? Why is the temple destroyed? Why was Jerusalem taken? Why were, we put, why were hooks put in our noses and we were dragged to a place we don't want to be and we're being tormented by people saying, why don't you sing your nice songs about your homeland while you're sitting here by the rivers of Babylon? And they said, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. This is what the Psalms are. This is what the, the, the word of the Lord includes. So it should be absolutely central to our lives as well. The willingness to lament, to know sorrow. So there doesn't seem to be a problem. I hope there isn't with us acknowledging that sometimes it feels like prayer is unanswered. We can sort of get that. The problem, as C.S. Lewis says, is not that. The scandal is that Jesus seems to promise that prayers will be answered, doesn't he? Right? Where two or three are gathered in my name, I'll be there. Ask whatever you need in my name, right? That's the problem. We, under, we could understand why sometimes God can't deliver on that promise, but, with, but the promise was made, and that seems really weird. So what do we do with this? Well, again, I want to look at what do we see in Scripture around this question of unanswered prayer. I've already talked about the Psalms a bit, but I want to read out one of them in particular. It's what I used to call the emo psalm. You know, do people know what emo is? You know, just really sad music. Everything's terrible. Psalm 88 is the one lament where there is sort of no hint of anything good is going to happen. It's rough. It, it, it goes like this in, in verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Well, that sounds all right. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? You ever felt that? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. There's another translation of it that says, darkness is my only companion. That is an emo song. Darkness is my only companion. My son, my, my uh, third son, my third child, Noah, he used to write songs when he was really little. I don't know what the, what the deal was, but he wrote one called um, uh, Dark Night of the Soul when he was three. We're like, are you all right? <laughs> dark Night of the Soul. It was really like, but that's Psalm 88. It's like, it's dark. Things aren't looking very good. And it ends, darkness is my only companion. I love that that psalm is in there because there are times when we are there and we need to know that that's allowed, that we can express this, this faithful complaint, even sometimes outright accusations that God isn't, doesn't seem to be listening. Well, okay, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? 
you know, has something changed? Um, Jesus actually says in, in Matthew 13, he says, you know, there was tons of prophets and, and holy men and women who longed to see what you're seeing now, but they never did. You know, we can say very religiously, well, it did happen. Their prayers were answered. Jesus came, but they never saw it in their whole lives. They never saw it. Do you think in their life, it'd be, oh, don't worry, you know, it'll come a thousand years later. They never saw it. There are things that we may never, ever see, and that can really feel like unanswered prayer. But it gets even heavier than that. Here's the big one. Here's the big description of unanswered prayer in the New Testament. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. I'll read it to you. Then Jesus went with them, that is his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. This cup. Jesus is saying, I don't want this to happen. I don't want to be accused and betrayed and arrested and tried and beaten spat on and humiliated. I don't want to be taken to the cross and killed there. I don't want that. And in an even deeper way, I don't want to drink this cup, that is, the cup of, of the consequences of the world's disobedience and rebellion. I don't want, I don't deserve it. I don't want it. That is a really weird thing. For us to imagine Jesus saying, yet it's right here, if there's any way, Father, for this cup to pass from me, nevertheless, I think that our salvation is bound up in that nevertheless. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Isn't that kind of like us? <laughs> Found him sleeping. And he said to Peter, So uh, could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He prays it twice. I don't want this. Nevertheless, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same thing again. This wasn't a light prayer. Jesus repeats this three times. I don't want to do this. Make it not be. That is our prayer. The deepest prayer, really, that anybody prays is, Lord, make this not be. Three times 
Jesus goes to his father, the most intimate prayer relationship that has ever existed and could ever exist, the relationship that exists at the center of all creation, the relationship that has always existed, and he says, Father, please make this not be. Nevertheless, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus asks the Father straight up, Deliver me from evil. And the Father says to his son, no. I will deliver you into the hands of the evil one. Now before we think at any point we try and theologize that away, that maybe it wasn't that big a deal. I have friends again who kind of think, well, it wasn't that big a deal that Jesus went to the cross because he knew that he was coming back. It wasn't that big a deal. It's not really death. Before we start thinking like that, when we read the account in Luke, it says that Jesus was so overcome with anxiety and sorrow that he started to sweat drops of blood. And that is humanly possible, medically possible, that in our, the height of our, our anxious extremes, blood can tinge into our sweat. He was at the very extreme of human pain and sorrow in that place and anxiety. And so the angels had to come and minister to him because otherwise he just wasn't going to make it. This was a big deal. Jesus was praying and it seems like he did get an answer. And the answer was no. Jesus's prayer in Gethsemane, I want to try and explain this and help you understand, is, is a prayer of lament. There is a complaint there. I don't want this. I know it's coming. I don't want it. I don't want that to be. Make it other than this. But it's a faithful complaint. Because a lot of the Psalms, it it does this. It says, God, this isn't right. This isn't right. This isn't right. This doesn't seem good. My enemies are all around me. My friends are, 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 are saying scandalous things about me. I don't seem to have any. My bones are like wax. This isn't good. But I will choose to trust the Lord my God in the middle of it. Everyone knows Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Beautiful psalm. We use it a lot for comfort. But there's this line that says, He sets a table for me in the presence of my enemies. We sort of forget that. I saw someone who who had a little picture of themselves on the beach, and they had a little picnic, and he said, oh, they, they quoted Psalm 23. He sets a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Where are your enemies? Are they crabs? Like, what's going on? Like... This doesn't look like maybe the enemies were inside. I don't know. I don't want to judge. But I think that we missed that. He sets a table for me. We're supposed to sit down and eat in the presence of our enemies. We're not actually out of the situation. We're right in the middle of it. The cancer is advancing. And he sets a table for us. This is lament saying, my enemies are still there. It's almost a reminder. God, they're there. Look at them. I'm not pointing at you. You're not my enemy. I'm just saying like, In our prayer life, I think we should be quite willing to say, this isn't good. One of the best prayers that we ever had in our church, and we we live in a really rough place. A lot of people um, addicted and prostituted and and homeless and and, and mental illness. And and, and we would have these gatherings, and we just kind of open up for prayer. And this one guy, I love him. He's a good friend of mine. But if you knew him, well, if you met him today, you'd say, that guy's a jerk. You would. 
Like, there's no way. And you would not be wrong. You'd say, that guy's a jerk. I'm like, yeah, yeah. But you should have seen him 10 years ago. He was a huge jerk 10 years ago. Like a massive jerk. He's so much better now. But he, he, and he always goes, oh, I hate all these Christians, all these Christians. But he always hangs out with all these Christians. And, and he goes, ah, I don't believe in prayer. But he's always the first guy to pray. So we, he is, it's weird. And, and he's been an addict for a long time. He doesn't want to be. And so we were praying, and he started praying. He said, oh, God. And, and you could almost feel the room tense because you know what's coming. He goes, oh, God, to me, to me, God, you're very weak. Wow. I, I was just about quoting a psalm there, honestly. But I know. We go, whoa, 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 you can't talk like that about God. He goes, to me, you're very weak. I've been addicted for so many years, and I don't want to be addicted. I don't like it anymore, and I ask you to help me all the time, and I'm still addicted, and you don't seem to be able to do anything about it. You're weak to me. Silence. But I know you love me. Amen. That was a psalm. That was a lament. That was a faithful complaint. And I have, that con- I have the conversation with him. Hey, you know, maybe, maybe you're on a roof and God's like bringing a helicopter and the waters are rising and you're going, no, 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 I don't want that. I'll sort it, you know, maybe that's happening and you need to sort out your own life. But, but he's just being honest and we need to be honest and vulnerable in our prayer life. We, we meet every morning in, the, in our park to pray and there's about 200 people living there, uh, homeless, and sometimes they come and join us and we have a guy who... Um, who prays with us every morning. He helps lead the prayers. And he was a, an alcoholic for 30 years of his life. And uh, he's just an incredible evangelist, though, now. And he just wants to always bring people into prayer. And he'll see people walk past, and, they, and he'll go, hey, do you want to come and pray with us? And sometimes they'll go, no, 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 I don't. I, the only thing I have to say to God are, are swear words. You know, I got, I, I just, and he'll go, oh, he wants to hear those too. You know, and I've said to guys, if your regular heart language involves a lot of swearing and your prayer life doesn't, then maybe you're not praying very honestly. I don't know how you'll receive that in, in, in a church. I don't know how religious people receive that. I'm not used to speaking to religious people. I'm used to speaking to crack addicts. So I don't really care, you know, and I'm going away. If you have complaints, talk to him. But I think, I, I think that, that dealing with this question of unanswered prayer means we actually got to pray. And that means we actually got to be open and vulnerable with the Lord and say, this is what's really going on. I used to do this. I called it L-shaped prayer. That I thought that maybe in order for God to, to really hear my prayers, I had to create an image of myself that was a far more holy and pious, that he would be able to receive my prayers a lot better. And I'd send the prayers up through this kind of fake Aaron this holy Aaron that wasn't really real, uh, until I really realized that that was stupid. Because God wasn't fooled. It wasn't like, you know, if I, if I just happened to bring up my stuff, he'd go, oh, I never knew. Like, I had no idea you were struggling with that, or that was troubling your soul, or that was a sin you were doing. Like, you had no idea. Like, that, we, we're so, like, we believe that God knows us, that God loves us. And yet we still want to hide from him. This is the, the original problem. You know, Adam and Eve sin, and then they go and hide. And God comes down and goes, oh, where are you? You know, like he doesn't know. Like they're hiding from God. It's so silly. But we still do it. We do it in our prayer life, which is the last place we should be doing this. 
unanswered prayer, I mean, we, to wrestle with this properly, we got to be open. we got to be vulnerable. we got to be honest. And, and then I think the most helpful passage that I can imagine around this is Jesus on the cross. And his words on the cross, you probably know them, but we, we, we're really scared of them. And he says it in his heart language. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever sat in that for a little bit? I think Jesus on the cross is saying to God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, forsaken. You have let me go. You have abandoned me. Why? Well, Jesus didn't just come up with those words. He's quoting from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a beautiful lament. And I think probably one of the most famous laments. And I want to read out bits of it for you now, because I think it's quite important. Because I think that he's not just quoting from that first verse. I think he is inhabiting that entire psalm on the cross. So I'll read this out, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean. I think it encompasses the whole of it. So verse 1 and 2, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verses 6 to 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They, wa- they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Those are words that were actually said to Jesus on the cross. If, if you're the Messiah, why don't you just come down? If you trust in God, why don't you just come down from that cross? That was said to him. Verses 14 to 18. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. You know, this is, this is the real stuff. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. That's a pretty big hint. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That happened. Jesus is inhabiting the whole of this psalm, the whole of this lament, the whole of this feeling of I am forsaken, my prayers have been unanswered. This sounds like unanswered prayer to me. That there's just too much trouble in the world. I had a friend, pretty famous guy. I remember him preaching, and it was one of his last sermons. And he was just not doing well, and he should never have been up preaching. Because he was really, I think, hurting the congregation because he was saying, you know, I've come to the point of just believing that crack is more powerful than God. That it just, he can't deal with it in this world. And maybe in the next world, everything will be sorted out. But for now, some people, their tickets just punched and there's nothing that God can do. And he subsequently lost his faith. And if we just read those bits, if we just hold on to that, then maybe we might go there. We have to go to that place to be honest about feeling forsaken, but there's a nevertheless. There is an and yet, and it's also found in Psalm 22, verses 3 to 5. Yet, it says. So in verse 2, it says, by night I find no rest. God, you don't answer. Verse 3, yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. We remember the history. We remember the story. You have been faithful. That's all it's saying so far. You have been faithful. It doesn't feel like you're listening right now, but I know you've been faithful in the past. That's important. 
What do we do with the feeling of unanswered prayer? We remind ourselves of God's faithfulness. And then we go to verses 9 to 11. Yet, again, it starts with yet. You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. In my own life, I know you have been faithful. We remind ourselves of God's faithfulness in the big story and in our little story. Verses 19 to 21. But, it starts, anytime you see a yet or a but, look what just happened before. (laughs) For my clothing they cast lots, in verse 18. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Please do it. You have done it. It's a declaration of faith. That even though it doesn't look like it right now, there is still hope. There is a but. There is a yet. There is a nevertheless. And we hold on to it. There's a great quote. It says, even with my dying breath, I will scream, God heals, God saves. That is what persistent faith does look like. Verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard When he cried to him, verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. And it ends with this, verse 29 to 31 in Psalm 22. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Even the person who has died. The rich, the poor, even the person who has died will praise the Lord. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. He has done it. What are Jesus' final words on the cross? It is finished. He has done it. He is living this psalm. He is showing us what to do with lament. He is showing us what to do with the feeling of being forsaken. He is showing us what to do with what, when we feel like prayer is unanswered. You live this lament. You walk through this pain. And I have done this with many, many people in addictions because addiction is just trying to escape pain. That's what it is. That's what drugs and alcohol are doing. It's an attempt to escape pain. Often, so is religion. It's an attempt to escape pain. But true religion is not escaping pain. True religion is saying, I will look the world in the face. I will stare pain down, and I will experience the fullness of it, and I will say, and yet, my God saves. We are not an escaping people. We do not agree with Karl Marx who said religion is the opium of the masses, which says that, that it's just the escape from our pain. No, it is the place that gives us the strength and the faith to endure the pain of the world and with the pain of the world. A world in pain needs a people who know how to walk through pain. They don't need a people who will just ignore pain or not believe that pain is real or will say, well, that's not my pain. They need a people who are practiced in sitting in pain, in sitting in the feeling of forsakenness, who know how to say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and yet, nevertheless, I don't want this, but your will be done, and I will align my will with it, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
even though I have to eat in the presence of my enemies. This is the call of discipleship. This is the call to the cross. This is what prayer requires, is being aligned with those who say, yet I am forsaken. I don't say this from any place above pain. I've known it. I know it. I've done a lot of funerals. We've had 2,500 people in the last couple of years die of fentanyl overdoses in our neighborhood. But it's not just that. You know, we, we've had to carry some really heavy stuff with Jesus in our community. Probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do was uh, with this, this girl in our community. I'd known her since she was 12, and she'd had a really hard life. And uh, she came to us after one summer, and, you know, her life hadn't been going very well before the summer, but she went to a, a summer camp, a Christian summer camp, and things really got better for her. She met a guy, a good Christian guy. Things were looking really good, but she came to us in September, and she said, uh, I got to tell you something, that before the summer, I was with this other guy, and I just found out, I didn't know about it in the summer, I just found out that I'm pregnant, and I don't think that I can raise the baby. Um, would, you, would you take the baby? And we thought about it for about a tenth of a second, and we said, yeah, yeah, of course we will. You know, you can't, you can't say stuff and then not follow up. Like, it, that's, not, that's not a, th- you don't have to go, well, we've got to weigh up the pros and cons of that. Like, you can't be saying, I'm going to sit in the pain with people and then just say, like, oh, no, 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 just not, no, not that. You know, so we said, yeah. So my wife started going to some of the, the, the appointments with her, and they found out actually within two weeks that there was something wrong now with the baby, and uh, they said, the baby is not going to be viable, was the words. And, and she, I mean, just amazing, she, to her credit, she said, well, what does that mean? Uh, you know, is there a chance? They said, well, there's a chance, there's always a chance, but really, it's not viable, and really, you should just, you know, for your own sake, just um, get rid of it. And she said, well, no, I don't want to do that. And they, they thought that my wife was kind of pressuring her. They said, we know that you want this baby. And she's like, trust me, I got four other kids. We don't, we're, not, like, we're not looking for, this wasn't the plan, all right? But they were going, and they kept on saying, you know, you really should just get rid of the baby. It's going to be so much easier. And so she just finally said, stop talking about that. I want to give my baby every chance that we can. And so we just prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. Believe me, we, were, we do 24-7 prayer, you know, so it was full on. We were praying and praying and praying. And it, the time came for her to give birth, and she went full term, which was she really wasn't supposed to be able to do that. She went full term, and there was like 20 of us in the hospital and just praying and singing, and she, she gave birth, and the baby was alive. And that wasn't supposed to happen. But she wasn't looking good. And so we all gathered around, and for the next hour and a half, we passed the little baby around, and we named her, and we prayed over her, and we sang over her, and we dedicated her unto the Lord, and then we held her as she died. And, and that's probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do as a pastor. And, you know, we believed. It wasn't that we had any doubt that God could do this. There wasn't a broken link in the chain of faith. But that particular prayer to us seemed very unanswered. So we did it. We held a funeral. 
Actually, before that, I want to tell you that the, the nurses came in the hospital, and they were just weeping when they saw what was going on. And one nurse just came to me and said, look, we just didn't know. I said, what do you mean you didn't know? She said, well, we just thought that she was another unmarried, teenage, indigenous girl. We didn't know that she had family. We didn't know that she had people around her. You know, I don't think that the same things would have been suggested to her if that had been the case. So there was a witness uh, in the hospital. But we did the funeral, and this young girl's family had been separated and broken for years, and they came together in this funeral. And what do you say at the funeral of an hour-and-a-half-old child? But it, it came to me. I, I think it was just from the Spirit. It came. I said, look, this life was beautiful. The entire life that she lived, she was loved, she was fought for, she was defended, she was prayed for, she was sung over, she was dedicated to the Lord. She never knew rejection. She never knew abuse. She never knew a hard word. The world was arrayed against her, and her mom and her family and her community were fighting for her all the way through, and now she's in glory. What an enviable life. What a beautiful life, and it brought her family together again for the first time in a decade. There was a beautiful answered prayer. It wasn't the prayers that we were praying in that moment. But it was answers to prayer. And then later on that year, she got married to the guy, and it was one of the most joyful weddings I ever got to be part of. They, they danced down the aisle, and it wasn't cheesy. <laughs> like, sometimes those things are cheesy, folk. This was, like, real, and everyone was partying. It's beautiful, and they're still in our community and still doing beautifully. Unanswered prayer. We don't know. We don't have the perspective to know. The one who did have the perspective to know said, may it not be, and yet I will align my will with yours. Maybe we should do the same. Say, we will sit in the pain. We will trust in the Lord. We will say, we don't know the whole story. And in our darkest moments, when our whole, all our companions are darkness, let us say, and yet, and yet, and yet. Amen?